Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And, as you recall, a year ago, we covered Alien and Aliens. We threatened, violently threatened, to cover the rest of the franchise. That's right. And we're definitely going to be doing you some bodily harm with this one. That's right. Because we're talking about Alien 3. That's right. (laughs) And oh my God, does this one have a storied history. Probably more storied than any movie we've ever deep dove before. And I'm interested to hear some of those stories because I don't really know that much about the production of this movie. I just know things, you know, based on what I've seen. And um, I mean, spoiler alert, it's just not my favorite. Well, thank God this is a two-host podcast because I feel like sometimes I watch things and then I'm just like done with it and I wash my hands of it. And I feel like this time that was you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pretty much it. <laughs> but that's okay. I'm still here to talk about it. So it's fine. You okay. know? Well, Alien 3 is a 1992 American science fiction horror film directed by David Fincher in his theatrical film debut with music by Elliot Goldenthal and written by David Geiler, Walter Hill, and Larry Ferguson from a story by Vincent Ward and an army of studio executives. (laughs) It stars Sigourney Weaver reprising her role as Ellen Ripley, or as you would say, reprise. Reprised. And is the third installment of the Alien franchise. Set right after the events of Aliens, Ripley and an alien organism are the only survivors of the colonial marine spaceship Sulaco. Following an escape pod's crash on a planet housing a penal colony populated by violent male inmates. The film also features additional roles played by Charles Dance, Brian Glover, Charles Estedden, Pete Postlewaite, and Lance Henriksen reprising his role as the android bishop. The film faced many problems during production, which we'll get into later in this episode, such as shooting without a script. There were various screenwriters and directors attached, but David Fincher was ultimately brought on to direct after a proposed version with Vincent Ward as director was canceled during pre-production. Fincher has since disowned the film, blaming studio interference and deadlines. In 2003, a revised version of the film known as The Assembly Cut was released without Fincher's involvement and received a much warmer reception. And that's the version we're going to be discussing today during this episode, although some of the release history will actually include the original cut. Okay, listeners, in space, you can't escape studio meddling. (laughs) This is Alien 3. (laughs) Here, in a world where the sun burns gold, and the wind blows colder. A visitor has come. But not by herself. It started. Come on! The suspense is back. And we have no weapons of any kind? The fear is back. Most of all, the bitch is back. (laughs) Alien 3. (laughs) 
Aboard the colonial marine spaceship Sulaco, a hidden alien egg hatches, releasing a facehugger. A fire starts, and the ship's computer launches an escape pod containing Ellen Ripley, the young girl Newt, Hicks, and the damaged android Bishop, all four blissfully ignorant in cryonic stasis. The pod crash lands on Fury 161, a foundry and maximum security correctional facility inhabited by male inmates. The inmates spot the wreckage and recover the crashed pod and its passengers. Ripley, played by Sigourney fucking Weaver, is awakened by Clemens, played by Charles Dance, the prison doctor, who informs her that she's the sole survivor. Ripley insists that Clemens perform an autopsy on Newt, and that her and Hicks' bodies be subsequently cremated, secretly fearing that Newt may be carrying an alien embryo. Despite protests from the warden, played by Brian Glover, and his assistant Aaron, the autopsy is conducted and no embryos found. The funeral proceeds in the foundry, attended by the prisoners and presided over by the warden, with Dylan, played by Charles S. Dutton, the prisoner's de facto spiritual leader, delivering a speech for the deceased as their bodies are dropped into the furnace. Elsewhere, a quadrupedal alien bursts from one of the oxen they used to drag Ripley's crashed pod back to the facility. Later, Ripley finds the damaged bishop in the facility's garbage dump. Just as she's leaving the area, she's cornered by four inmates and almost raped. After being saved by Dylan, Ripley returns to the infirmary and reactivates Bishop, played by Lance Henriksen, who, before being asked to permanently shut down, confirms through scanning ship records that at least one facehugger was on board and came with them to Fury 161 in the escape pod. Growing to full size, the alien kills inmates Murphy, Boggs, and Reigns, and returns outcast prisoner Golik, Paul McGann, to his previously psychopathic state. Golik dubs the creature the Dragon. Ripley informs the warden of her previous encounter with xenomorphs, and suggests everyone work together to hunt it down and kill it. The highly skeptical warden doesn't believe her story and explains that even if she were telling the truth, the facility's without weapons. Their only hope is the rescue ship being sent for Ripley by the Whaley Newtani Corporation, or the company. Later, the alien ambushes Ripley and Clemens in the prison's infirmary, killing him, and almost slays Ripley, but then mysteriously spares her and retreats. Ripley then rushes to the cafeteria to warn the others. The warden insists she is delusional and orders Aaron to take her back to the infirmary, but the warden himself is dragged into the vents and killed by the monster before anyone can react. Ripley assumes command, rallying the inmates and proposes they pour flammable toxic waste into the ventilation system and ignite it to flush out the alien. However, the alien attacks, causing a premature explosion, and several inmates are killed. Despite the failure, the creature follows an inmate into the toxic waste disposal area, which is completely enclosed, with only one entrance. They quickly close the door, trapping it inside. Bothered that the alien didn't kill her when it had the chance, Ripley scans herself using the escape pod's medical equipment and discovers the embryo of an alien queen growing inside her. She also discovers through communications to the facility that Whaling Utani, the company, hopes to turn the aliens into biological weapons. Gullick, still insane and obsessed with the dragon, convinces another inmate to release him. He immediately knocks out the other inmate and, after seemingly praying to the alien, releases it back into the facility before being violently killed by it himself. Devastated by this turn of events, Ripley goes after the alien herself, and it again refuses to kill her. Deducing that the alien will not harm her because of the embryo she carries, Ripley begs Dylan to kill her himself. 
He agrees to do the deed, but only if she helps the inmates kill the alien first. They form a plan to lure the alien to the foundry's molding facility, trap it via a series of closing doors, and drown it in molten lead. The bait-and-chase plan results in the deaths of nearly all the remaining prisoners. Dylan sacrifices himself to position the alien towards the mold as another inmate pours the molten lead onto them. Even though the alien is covered in molten metal, it survives and escapes the mold. But when Ripley activates the fire sprinklers, it causes its now molten metal exoskeleton to cool rapidly and shatter, blowing it apart and killing it. The Huelin Yutani team finally arrives, including scientists, heavily armed commandos, and a man who looks identical to Bishop, who explains that he's not an android, but Bishop's creator. He tries to persuade Ripley to undergo surgery to remove the alien queen embryo, which he claims will be destroyed. Highly skeptical, Ripley refuses and steps back onto the mobile platform, positioning it over the furnace. Ignoring Bishop's desperate pleas to give them the embryo, Ripley throws herself into the furnace, killing herself, before the infant queen is able to burst from her chest. The facilities are closed down, and the company leaves Furia empty-handed. Or did they? The end? No. <laughs> Certainly the end of that movie. <laughs> Jesus. That's a lot. Yes, it is. Alien 3 was released on May 22nd, 1992, Memorial Day weekend. It grossed $23 million opening weekend and secured the number two spot at the box office behind Lethal Weapon 3. Other movies that shared the top ten that weekend include Far and Away, Encino Man, Basic Instinct, Beauty and the Beast, and Wayne's World. While the film was considered to be a flop in North America, with a domestic gross of $55.5 million, it played very well overseas, grossing more than $104 million internationally. Against a budget of $50 to $60 million, it earned almost $160 million at the box office, causing Fox to claim it was the highest grossing installment of the franchise, even though that was a lie. Huge lie, and I think they were lying about that before, too. <laughs> so... Um... Alien 3 holds a 45% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 47%. Super close. The site's consensus reads, Alien 3 takes admirable risks with franchise mythology, but far too few pay off in a thinly scripted sequel whose stylish visuals aren't enough to enliven a lack of genuine thrills. Metacritic assigned a score of 59, signifying mixed or average reviews, and audiences, polled by CinemaScore, gave the film an average grade of C. Both Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert gave the film two thumbs down, feeling it was repetitious, and they criticized the drawn-out chase scenes near the end of the film, as well as the lack of suspenseful action. They both, however, praised the look and art direction in addition to Weaver's performance. Ebert later wrote, I lost interest in Alien 3 when I realized that the aliens could at all times outrun and outleap the humans, so all the chase scenes were contrivances. When he reviewed Fincher's later film, Fight Club, he called Alien 3 one of the best-looking bad movies I've ever seen. I mean, I have to agree with yeah, that. I mean, yeah. I, I like that whole review, actually. I think he pretty much sums up a lot of things about Alien 3. It is as beautiful as browns, beiges, and sepias can be as a color palette <laughs> for a film. Here, here. Uh... With that review being said, the movie does have some accolades and legacy to talk about. At the Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Visual Effects, but lost to Death Becomes Her. Well, uh, it was nominated for Best Dramatic Presentation at the Hugo Awards. 
It was nominated for an MTV Movie Award for Best Action Sequence, but lost to Lethal, Lethal Weapon 3. It was nominated at the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards for Best Big Budget Film, which lost to Bram Stoker's Dracula, of course. Best Actress, which lost to Virginia Madsen for Candyman. And Best Supporting Actor for Charles S. Dutton, although lost to Anthony Hopkins for Bram Stoker's Dracula. I mean, all well-deserved wins for yeah. these people. Yeah. Um, at the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Sci-Fi Film, but lost to Star Trek VI. It was nominated for Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Director, Writing, Costumes, and Best Special Effects. Winning none of them. So it won <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of nominations, you know. This is like the color purple of horror movies. It's like something right? called like the Golden Globes or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean... He who shan't be named. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, this movie has a stacked cast. It really does. I was very surprised by the, the acting and the performances in this movie, actually. I mean, like, to be fair, I had only seen Alien 3 a couple times earlier in my life when it first came out, right? So I was like 13 years old ish. And I had never picked it up again. And so it was like watching it fresh for the first time. And really it was because it was a different cut, you know. But um, yeah, I was surprised by a lot of these actors. And of course, that's led by Sigourney fucking Weaver. Which we completely love. I was thinking while we're while, while I was watching this movie about the number of films that we've covered on the podcast that have Sigourney fucking Weaver in it. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're at like five or six at this point. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So. <laughs> but uh, and of course, all of them, which Sigourney Weaver should have been in, which is every movie we've ever covered. But, That's right. You know. I mean, you said earlier today that if you ever met Sigourney Weaver, Sigourney fucking Weaver, that you would just like, I don't know, it'd be like the end of things. Right. <laughs> if we have to meet her at this point, I just I feel like we need to go on some sort of pilgrimage and like stand outside her home. Until until we meet her. And then just say, hey, listen to our podcast. Notice us, senpai. <laughs> just for once. I mean, if we just if we stand outside her house long enough, I'm pretty sure that she will come out and say, get away from me, you bitch. <laughs> and that would just make my life complete. <laughs> so. That's true. But there's more to the cast than Sigourney fucking Weaver, right? And I think um, for me... The, the next best performance comes from Charles S. Dutton, who played Dylan. Oh, definitely. He's been in so many horror films and genre films. He's prolific. And he's a director of his own right and a writer. Yeah, I mean, he was on rock for a long time, too. So he, he knows like, like comedy beats. I think he's a, he's a very gifted actor. But this guy has several really interesting and powerful monologues in this film. Like yes. the, the he does like the prayer while you know newt and hicks are being thrown into the furnace for their cremation there's a couple of you know times that he's kind of like rallying the troops well yeah and that he like he he makes no qualms about who he is as a person too i think one of my favorite scenes involving him and ripley is where she obviously feels safe with him because he's some sort of religious leader and he he's like make no mistake lady he's like i'm a murderer and a rapist of women and things like that. I mean, he just like delivers those lines. So like, just, I don't know, convincing. Yeah, me. but they, they wrote that scene very well because she just collapsed back. And she's like, well, that must make you nervous then. 
You know, I love that scene between them and it really establishes those two characters. And it's one of the only good scenes in the whole movie. Yeah. I mean, well, it's really one of the only good scenes of like characterization in the movie. Well, I have to say, I, I really loved Charles Dance in this as Clemens, as the doctor. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's a, in the, at least in this assembly cut, I've forgotten what the original cut was, but they're romantic partners, him and Ripley in this. That's right. And they go to great lengths to kind of ex- explain his character and where he came from. Yeah, and, and why he remains on the planet and things like that. And and like he also has a past, but he chose to stay there because he feels, you know, a um a camaraderie or a duty to the the men on this planet, right? But yeah, I mean like they, they very quickly become romantically involved and I I don't quite buy that, you know what I mean? But I'm sure we can get into that later on. But I mean as far as like characterization goes, I think I think that he's good. I just think that they start a lot of things and they don't follow through with it with him. And I also think that he dies like really super quickly. Yeah. And we can get into more of that later, but the rest of the cast is kind of fleshed out by a lot of like character actors yeah. and people, you know, like, so like Warden Andrews by Brian Glover, um, Aaron by Ralph Brown, Golick by Paul McGann, who went on to do Dr. Who, uh, Bishop, of course, you know, played by Lance Henriksen and the late great Pete Postlewaite, who I always enjoy seeing. And he didn't have much to do here, but I always love him when I when he pops up in a movie. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, so I always go back to like Romeo plus Juliet, right? Mm-hmm. And his role in that, playing the friar. I mean, it's just like, he's he's a good actor. I mean, it, anytime there's a really good like British movie, like Pete Postlewaite shows up. But he's, he's in a bunch of franchises too. He's a Clash of the Titans, and he was in like the Aeon Flux thing with Charlize Theron, and a bunch of other stuff. He's just uh, prolific. I, I love him when I see him because he's always so good. And I think, I mean, like he's he's fully recognizable. So people who don't know a lot of these British actors, right, would certainly recognize him from a lot of movies, which is good. Yeah. So the alien, uh, or you know, quote unquote, the dragon in this movie was played by Tom Woodruff Jr., who actually went on the same year to win an Oscar for Death Becomes Her, right? Because he was the uh, like a FX coordinator, he decided just to play the alien himself. So that he could, because he knew how the everything would move and what need to be done in the camera and everything, and he went on to do Death Becomes Her and won an Oscar for that. And that competed against this movie, so I just thought that was funny. That's so interesting. Yeah. Oh my god, I can't believe I didn't know his name. Really, I mean, because I know Death Becomes Her has some amazing special effects. Yeah, this is the time. Time right? break. Yeah, yeah. A lot of this stuff. This is the time where things were like being like proven out or or broken, and things had to be reinvented. And you know, things like Terminator Two and Death Becomes Her came along and kind of proved things out for Jurassic Park. You know what I mean? So this is like a film history here. And I mean, I'm glad that we like are talking about the cast right now because I think that's one of the best things about this movie. Actually, is is some of the acting work in it. And I mean, honestly, this movie has a lot of really good parts to it it just doesn't make a cohesive whole right and so i'm sure we'll get into some of that later on but i I think that by and largely these actors were really good at what they were given to do oh yeah right there's a lot of good ingredients in this movie but like we're gonna get at you know there's things that complicate that situation So why don't we just get into that a little bit? Like the the development hell, the background of this movie. Yes, I'm so interested to know these things. Yeah, it's just like, it's really storied. Like, so with the success of Aliens, 20th Century Fox approached Brandywine uh, Productions on further sequels, right? And so they had a lot riding on this. I think they had a kind of a string of failures. And so they were basically like, this is our franchise and we need to like make it work. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so Brandywine was actually less than enthused with like an Alien 3 project. 
um, with producer David Geiler later explaining he and his partner Walter Hill and Gordon Carroll wanted to take new directions that you know wouldn't be a repeat of one and two. But I think Brandywine wanted a sure bet. You know, so there was already, you know, diversions and like the production company and the major studio of what they wanted to do here. And that kind of set the stage for everything that would follow. Right. So a large two part story was constructed between the two uh, studios, basically saying uh, making Hicks played by, of course, Michael Bean, the main hero for the first part with Ripley returning for the second part for an epic final confrontation between the heroes, the expatriate, you know, expatriated humans from Earth and uh, the company having gotten an out of hand situation with the aliens. And so it was just kind of going to continue that main company versus Ripley company versus, you know, every man theme. Right. And it was going to continue that in a big epic two parter. And I would have loved to see that, especially since it continued the characters of Newt and uh, Michael Bean. And that does sound a lot more interesting to me than what we were given. I mean, cause I, you're right. And I know that we talked about in the other two episodes about, you know, alien aliens that Brandywine was sort of given the raw deal by Fox, you know, and maybe not have gotten some of the money that they should have had. And obviously I would, I would understand their trepidation. And also I, I would want them to like do something that really pays homage to the other two movies. Right. Cause at this point there's been a big chunk of years between aliens and Alien 3. And like we've learned with sequels and reboots, you know, recently, like Dr. Sleep notably, the longer time goes on, the less interest people might have, right? Mm -hmm. So they need to do something that really sort of like makes a big statement and ties things together. And I think that's a much better idea than than what we're given in this movie yeah well they they all of a sudden they didn't have anything to prove with the first alien and then with aliens this guy came out of nowhere james cameron with a with a whole script that he wrote himself and was fully invested and they couldn't control him but they got aliens mm -hmm. right at the end of it so they kind of wanted to get they're like hey we got ridley scott for the first one he's now a huge name you know we got james cameron he's now a huge name like what can we do like what who can we find and so that's kind of where that led but first they really wanted to go back and get Ridley Scott to return to direct uh, you know because he was he's not a writer he's not really a storyteller so much as he's like a really good technical director yes as we've seen time and time again uh, you know his own takes on on the on the franchise have done less than perfect obviously with Covenant and Prometheus and he didn't write those either but he's this kind of like a story by you know type of situation but they tried to get him but he was just too busy Right. What was he making at the time? I can't even remember around like that time. What really legend? Probably. I don't know. It was late eighties, right? So yeah. somewhere in there. But um, uh, the studio cycled then like through several different writers before they could find a director from nineteen eighty seven onwards. And of course, Aliens came out in eighty six. So this is just really literally like right after Aliens came out, they decided, hey, we've got to do something with this. This is huge. It made a shit ton of money. It's now a franchise. It's, it's you know. So they started with William Gibson, who was a, a cyberpunk author mm -hmm. who wrote a, a script that was kind of mockingly sung, summed up as space commies hijack alien eggs. Big problem in mall world. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought. So it, that was kind of a departure. And so like too much of a departure. So then they went to Eric Red, who actually wrote The Hitcher in Near Dark. Ooh. Yeah, and he wrote a version where all the survivors of the Sulaco had been killed by aliens and the infestation uh, that followed. And so he disowned the script after a while as he felt like it wasn't actually his script. It had been wrecked by too many story meetings and studio influencers. Jesus. People were like, well, maybe we don't need Ripley. 
Uh, women didn't go to the theaters the, the last two movies anyway, so maybe we can just go with Michael Bean. Or actually, to save money, why don't we just have a whole new cast and get and get rid of all the other actors? So you can see the seeds getting laid here for what would eventually become actual Alien 3. So after Eric Red left, um, David Toy started. And he actually wrote and directed, I believe, several of these, like Warlock, Terminal Velocity, Waterworld, the, the whole Riddick universe. He directed some of those. He was writers on the, the earlier ones. Uh, Pitch Black, if you recall. Yeah. So the whole Riddick universe, uh, which I, I really like Chronicles of Riddick. It's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. Yeah, I, I've, I've only seen Pitch Black, but I liked it very much. Yeah. But he uh, he started the concept of the prison planet, right, which was being used for illegal experiments for Weyland Yutani's biological weapons division. So it's very directly yeah. about Weyland Yutani, which I thought was smarter. And then after getting his script torn apart by all the committees, he walked away from the project too. That's also a much better version of the movie that we're given. I mean, like I they throw around Weyland Yutani so much in this movie, right? But it doesn't seem to come to fruition very much until the very end of the movie. It's almost like an afterthought, right? So I mm. kind of like the idea, like we talked about earlier, of having the company like very much involved in it. It seems like the appropriate way to go. Much more direct, right? This yeah. almost like Alien 3, the way it ended up almost feels like it's a prequel to the, the company's involvement of something, you know? Yes. So I don't know. But uh, Vincent Ward was brought in to write and direct it. Right. They thought, okay, maybe we can get another combo, kind of like James Cameron. Vincent Ward having just come out of Cannes with uh, The Navigator, which was highly regarded. I still haven't seen that. Yeah. But he would go on to do things like What Dreams May Come. So obviously a very visual, Mm -hmm. you know, director that that started off as a writer that ended up being a director. And um, he's very famous as well. But he was approached to both write and direct and envisioned Ripley's pod crashing on a wooden world, like a wooden planet, which... I initially just think it's the stupidest, weirdest, most out there thing that doesn't fit in the alien universe. But like the more I read and watched about it, like you can see, you can see some of the stuff in like the the special features on like the alien quadrilogy and anthology Blu-rays and stuff. And you can read about it too. But um, it was, it was actually kind of interesting because of the whole planet was operated by like these monastic monks, right? Who had kind of rejected technology. But at the heart of this wooden planet is a, a giant machine that actually operates the atmosphere, which is only about three feet deep, right? And basically held the whole thing together. But the vast majority of the surface of this little planet is wooden. And um, like the interior is all like expansive cathedral like spaces. Which I thought was like all like looking at all the storyboard art is just like amazing because it's like all those like almost like from Labyrinth or something, all those hallways going up and there's cathedral windows and and everything all over this thing because they're like medieval monastic monks. So when you say wooden, like the planet is made of wood? No, it's it's like this like spherical giant city sized, like massive spherical space station that they build on top of okay to be wooden with like all of these huge massive interiors that are all like cathedrals all the way through it like one gigantic spherical church and then on the surface of this thing is like wheat fields and some like man-made lakes and things like that so it's just the whole thing is kind of held together by that technological center that they could they've kind of rejected but they're using it you know just at the very at the bare minimum you know that sounds very impressive and like it's something that I would like to see, you know. I I can see how it would cost a lot of money. It's to really make out like there, but knowing that director and after seeing like things like What Dreams May Come, I could see that he could pull it off. He's really good at world building. I yeah. mean, yeah. So I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, because What Dreams May Come may not be the best movie, but it certainly looks amazing. So 
there was one planned sequence for this, which I thought was really cool because if you think about farming and you think about wooden structures, what's the number one enemy, right? Fire, mm. right? It's also the number one enemy of our favorite alien. That's right. And so there was the scene in it that I think Spielberg actually ended up just taking for a Jurassic Park two or three, one of those. And uh, it's in this like 10 foot tall wheat, uh, fields uh-huh. and you can see all these people trying to hunt this alien and the alien you can see just like the the parting of the reeds kind of thing through the weed the wheat and just like taking people out and there you can see the blood splattering and yep. and everything in the wheat fields and so they panic and they set the wheat fields on fire on this planet and remember this atmosphere is like three feet thick like there's wooden structures everywhere so it's just an amazing kind of like visual oh my tree God, i can this. picture it yes and so <laughs> That would have been really interesting. From and you're what, right. That's the Lost World, right? Yeah. 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 You can see them coming through the, the raptors coming through. Yeah, the, exactly. The, right? Yeah. So I feel like I was like, wow, that was like the storyboards just reminded me straight away of that. So like, I feel like some of this got recycled. But officially, he walked away from the project after an extreme amount of changes were requested from the studio committees. But unofficially, from what I can put together between what I can read and what I found and then some of those documentaries, like it's very, very briefly touched on and hinted at. But it seems like there was some kind of like personal close relationship with a female line producer that he had. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to go where you think it is because apparently she was actually calling the studio every night to tell on him the things that he was doing wrong. Like a fucking mole? Like a mole. Like she was a studio watchdog <laughs> who was basically sleeping with him or had some sort of close relationship with him and betrayed him that way. Good God. And he walked away. That's fucking ridiculous. Like, I mean, I I wouldn't put it past the studio. You know what I mean? Because obviously, I mean, like with, this, with the success of Aliens, which made a gobbledygillion dollars and got, you know, Academy Award nominations for people, including Sigourney fucking Weaver. Like, there's a lot riding on a third installment in this, and they want everything to come out. But, I mean, like, all these things you're telling me, it's just, like, too much. It's way too much. Just let people, like, make some art, which is what these first two movies were. So, yeah. yeah. Well, finally, Walter Hill and David Geiler were approached to create a finished script in partnership with the studio. And the studio heads fingered David Fincher to take over the directorial duties. And David Fincher at that point has been famous for things like music videos, right? Well, that's that's kind of coming up. Okay. Yeah. So at that point, the studio wanted to continue the trend of finding like an up-and-coming director like they had with Bradley Scott. James Cameron had been difficult to work with since he had his own vision mm-hmm. and was the sole writer for the story of Aliens. So basically, he they would ask things and they would he'd be like, no, you're going to have to fire me. Nope. <laughs> I'm doing it my way. Right? And uh, they had found David Fincher, who had actually been a former ILM, Industrial Light and Magic Effects cameraman. Really? Right? And then and he was really young, but he went on to do famous music video, uh, videos, including Vogue. Yes. Right? And Express Yourself for Madonna. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of found like, hey, this guy knows effects. He worked for ILM. He went on to do this really moody, really specifically visually aesthetic music videos some of her best we've got it we this guy's got it they they had a meeting with him they were blown away by his talent and the way that he would think about things but since fincher wasn't writing it and he was a young first-time director they thought that he would be grateful for the job and easy to control he wasn't no they basically got another james cameron who would obsess over the smallest of details but unfortunately he didn't have the creative control 
because he didn't write the thing like like James Cameron did, and he didn't have the you know the the industry. He didn't have his own production company like James Cameron did, and and all of that. Even after just James Cameron's first movie, James Cameron just had all that stuff. But Venture didn't have that, and he was only twenty eight years old when he was doing this. And like I said earlier, I think there's there's a lot of good parts to this movie that don't equal to a really good sum. And I think one of those parts is Fincher. I think when I was watching this movie last night, I could see like certain camera angles and certain like the way that things were shot. And I was like, this is Fincher. It has Fincher all over it, right? And of course, we, we know him now, right? Because post-Alien 3, he's gone on to make in my opinion, like some of the best movies like ever made. I think that Fincher is a fantastic director. Yeah, sure. But you know, one, one method of control they used was to withhold the script and have the writers in their own back pocket so they could control him day by day. Good Lord. Yeah. So Fincher shot off the screenplay and storyboards instead filming scripts as soon as he could, but filming his vision and forming themes in the story were impossible to manage because every little thing was argued against and Fincher himself was a perfectionist and would obsess over what he did have control over the very few things like lighting, you know, uh, setting up shots and like things like the exact color of blood he wanted, you know, so he would go over those things because he couldn't control the other things. That's like the, the biggest fucking mistake when making a movie. A director's job is to helm the entire project. You have to understand the scope of your story in order to create a film. Right. So if you're if you're withholding parts of the screenplay and you have no idea what's coming next, there's no way to create some sort of like linear, you know, story that makes sense to people. And I see that in this movie. To me, like some of the visuals are they're they're great. The acting is great, but problems lie within the story. And obviously, like if you don't have enough people understanding where the story is doing or where it's going, then you're going to fail miserably. Yeah. Well, by the end, Fincher was so depressed and frustrated that he had to walk away before the film was ultimately completed before release. I think he had done his edit, you know, and, and things like that, but he had to walk away. He felt that the film had been formed and hadn't no had no spiritual meaning. And ultimately he disowned the film, like we said before, and he's refused to have anything to do with it ever since, including any retrospectives and any kind of like making of content for home releases. I don't fucking blame him. I mean, like that sounds really ridiculous. He did, you know, they did reach out to him to do the assembly cut and he, he thought about it, but he said, absolutely not. Cause I'd still have to work with that studio. And so a person that he trusted was willing to do it. And he gave his blessing. And so the the studio the, the the special edition that we watched does have his blessing, but it's still not a completed movie. No. Right? So of course, as we know, he had the last laugh when he went on to do seven, mm. the game, Fight Club, House of Cards, Zodiac, Gone Girl, Mank, Love Death Robots. The list goes on. I mean, his filmography is so impressive. And I love when I can see a director and just like pinpoint it, right? If I'm watching a movie, I can I can say this is Venture, right? Yeah. Just like I can say it's De Palma or I can say it's Spielberg. He has his print, his thumbprint on like everything that he does. And I think that's incredibly fascinating for someone to be able to make the types of movies that he does across multiple genre and i could still say it's a fincher movie i i thought mank was fantastic last year i was glad that it was nominated for all the awards that it did in himself and i mean just again just so opposite of things that he's done before and it's it's good i i'm always excited when i see fincher's name on anything and i mean obviously uh 
missing from that list is Mindhunter, right? I think that's oh, really yeah. one of the best God. things he's done recently. Yeah. So, I mean, he just like continues to amaze me every single time. And I, I feel bad for him in this movie. I, I can see that he was trying to create something that's, that's good. I could, the intentions are there, right? And it's really not his fault that it turned out to be such a craptacular mess. Well, he was also kind of hard to work with, too. And I I feel like for all the studio meddling and everything there to blame, a little bit of it was him because he was hard to collaborate with, too, because he would want complete control of everything, just like James Cameron. But, you know, he, I think, used this in a way as a really good film school, not maybe technically because he was already there. Like, you know, but I think just with that long form, he had never really done you know, something longer than a fucking three minute music video. Well, and he certainly learned something about system, right? And, yeah. and what it takes to navigate that world. And I, I think that he has taken the the things that he learned from Alien Three and sort of like moved on from it, mm-hmm. and really just did what he needed to do to create the movies that he wanted to make. Yeah. Well, speaking of his vision, maybe we should start talking about the actual movie itself with the production design. Yes, please. Starting off with like when I watched this movie, I was just like astounded by the amount of sets. Yeah. And the locations, even though it's kind of the same location for the most part, like there's so many varying types of rooms and settings inside that facility. And I was like, yeah, they must have like filmed on location somewhere. Some like dilapidated, you know, you know, factory warehouse, something. But no, every fucking millimeter of what you see on the film is set. Even the out the exterior shots, is that set too? I'm sure I, the coast, you know, yeah. which wasn't in the original movie, by the mm-hmm. way, yeah. not the theatrical cut. That was cut was you know on location type of situation i'm sure for that little bit but that's like literally 15 seconds of the movie seconds of the movie (laughs) everything else was completely constructed everything it's so massive too i mean like it really feels huge yeah and i mean at the same time very very like constricted there are some scenes where like they're having their like religious prayer moment and they're sort of telling the inmates that a woman is on the planet and all the prisoners are sitting around this very small looking like prison right but still like the exteriors after that are just like so massive right all of the like the, the the foundry parts and stuff it's just huge and then everything kind of ties in together in that same palette. I mean, the costumes kind of match everything. Almost every could be everyone could be like lined up against the wall, and they just like start camouflaging, just like the alien itself. And that's that's really one of the the problems that I have with this movie too. Is that like we we already talked about the characterization and like how it's sort of lacking in this movie. And I think that the way that they styled it doesn't help it at all. Yeah, I think he had some ideas of what he wanted it to be and the tone that he was going for. And I think he might have even been trying to do some sort of homage to George Lucas's THX project, you know, where everyone's bald and has the barcodes, you know, and that's essentially what we have in in this movie. But unfortunately, with those costumes and the palette, this almost monochromatic palette. Everyone looks the fucking same. Yeah. So I'm watching this movie and I'm supposed to be concerned about them because their lives are in danger because there's an alien on the planet that's hunting them down. But I mean, we have people who look exactly the same. They're dressed exactly the same. And I get it. That's what prison is, you know, but, um, 
I can't I can't feel for these characters if I don't know who they are. I barely even learned their names watching this movie. And I, I think that like the the costume design and the, the the styling of it just really just hindered it from being more than what it could be. You could have a bare bones script with some characters and at least like style these people a little differently, right? I think it's sad to say that like the reason that we like or pin, pinpoint like Charles S. Dutton in this movie is because he's the one African-American amongst a sea of white people. Yeah. And what's his name in the movie? Dylan. Yeah. Yeah. But I, the only reason I know any of these names outside of Bishop and Ripley is because I had to write down like the synopsis and like yeah. the cast names and stuff. Like, I don't know anyone's names. Like, we don't get any of those like introductory really scenes like, like James Cameron was so good at mm-hmm. or even really Scott was so good at. Yes. You know, I do have to say like, James Cameron is really famous for all his technical like majesty and blah, blah, blah. But when he sits down and tells a story, he starts with the emotional arc. He starts with what needs to happen emotionally in this film and builds around it. Everything else is dressing, right? But like, I, I feel like Fincher, at least in the beginning of his career here, and certainly in music videos and all that, was yeah. very aesthetically based and stylized, right? And so we we get less of that in Seven because, of course, he's not a writer. He's a director. Exactly. But, you know... Anyway, I, d- I have to digress, but yeah, I know. And, and I, I don't want to harp on it too much. It's just like I like I've said before on the podcast. I mean, if you, if you don't feel an emotional connection with your character, like your story is going to fail. And if, if I'm only interested in, you know, like three characters out of a cast of 20 or whatever, and I'm su- supposed to care if they die or live, you know, like you have to you have to make me want to do that. And he doesn't. Well, also another way to maybe make some, you know, differences between these people who are all bald and had, you know, barcodes on their heads. You had two black guys and then like 30 white guys that all looked the same, blue eyes, white skin. Maybe get some like other races in there, like, you know, maybe some Asians. There was one Asian at the end who worked for the company, you know, maybe some, you know, Latinos, maybe like, come on, like, give us something else because I could not tell these white guys apart. No, and they were all like with British accents, all of them. I'm like, okay, like I have no idea which bald British guy I'm supposed to be paying attention to right now. Just like it's almost infuriating watching it because I was just like, I mean, like I was sighing, you know, and I was ready to take breaks. And I was just like, okay, I'm just not, I'm just not invested in these characters' lives. And at the same time, I, we're given performances like Charles S. Dutton and, and Sigourney fucking Weaver in this movie. And I'm like, those are fantastic, you know? Mm-hmm. But I mean, if they don't have the supporting cast there to help them round that out, like your movie is just not going to work. What did you think of the overall like palette did you get tired with it did you want like a respite i mean every once in a while they'd be in like a a mess hall where there'd be like a little bit more grays and blues or something and and, you know but for the most part this is brown's sepias 90 percent of his movies like factory warehouse you know foundry type of stuff (laughs) and i felt like freddy krueger was gonna jump out and tell me it's prime time at any point in this fucking movie (laughs) yeah no i mean you're right i i think that the, the 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 reprieves that we get from the palette are really like when it's under fluorescent lighting when it's in the mess hall and things like that and i I think they do that because they i don't this movie seems like a whole bunch of scenes and they're like okay so we're gonna really call attention to the scene so we're gonna have it as a different kind of lighting it's gonna be fluorescent it's gonna be the mess hall and then the rest of the movie or at least like 30 minutes later is the like in this other palette and very dark and then when they want to call attention to something else it's just like they've picked out the scenes that they want 
to really be good. And they're like, well, the rest of it is just filler. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. No, I, I agree. Well, speaking of filler, maybe we should talk about some of the special effects. <laughs> My God, quadrupedal. <laughs> now, I do have to say, I have to shout out the, the late, great Stan Winston, who always does amazing work. Yes. Right. And starting with that goddamn bishop head, I couldn't take my eyes off. It was so gross. And yeah. yet it wasn't. They had the actor. They could have done. But they they completely just did that with animatronics. It was so neat. The, that, that fucked up eye. Oh, my God. Right? With like just, milk coming out of it. And stuff. Yeah. Because I like, totally forgot that even existed in this yeah. movie. And I was just like, first of all, I was so happy to see another character that I already knew. Yeah. Right. The decapitated head of an older character was like a breath <laughs> of fresh air in this movie. I should tell you something. <laughs> That's so fucked up to say. But I mean, like, God. I was so happy to see, like, just the top part of Bishop. And welcome respite from the wet Grinch salad that is this movie. Fuck. And I mean, but and even that was, like, one of the best parts of the movie. I mean, because, like, I like that character from Aliens a lot. But I like him so much in this movie because he's like begging for death. You know what I mean? Well, so was everyone else in the goddamn movie. And the audience, really. I mean, like... (laughs) I mean, we're all we're all Bishop really watching this movie. You're like, can we be disconnected? <laughs> we're like, well, we have one more question. No, no, no. <laughs> Just disconnect me. But it's so neat. I really, I really liked that part. Well, everything that's done in camera in this in this film is done very well. Yeah. Technically, and it looks good. But like the new alien, which they call the dragon, right? Or this one character does and tends to worship, is supposed to be like a different kind of alien, right? Do you understand why? Um, I assume that when it's inside a host's body, it takes some of its yes. DNA, right? Xenomorph, right? Yeah. So if it comes out of like a fucking shellfish, it's going to look She's different. Gonna like a fucking <laughs> clam. <laughs> you should have seen some of the storyboards. They were like having like this horse, like a pet, like a, one of those, like, what are the horse guys called? Like the a cent- uh, cent- cent- centaur? Centaur. Like a centaur alien and <laughs> weird <laughs> shit. So what they did was they basically just elongated it and made it give it like bite, like quad- quadrupedal right so it's like it was already fucking in the last movie they were on all fours sometimes yeah like, they were crawling all over they, the place. they didn't need to so like in the original movie it was a dog right and then and then the actual assembly cut it's an oxen either way it's quadrupedal so like i said everything that they do in camera from stan winston and the in the suit and everything like that is good but it, it seemed like they were they were originally going to do the advanced stop motion, like the go motion or mo motion, depending on what mm-hmm. you read, that Jurassic Park was going to so do. So we've talked about that before, yeah. Before they do the abandoned, yeah, it's a direct callback to last summer's conversation about Jurassic Park's like groundbreaking CGI that still holds up today, you know? They were going to use uh, that, that, that sort of thing, but they abandoned it. Uh, for some CGI, which of course the stuff for Jurassic Park hadn't been invented yet, and mm-hmm. didn't have access to that, but the advanced uh, they used they ended up using advanced rod puppet on a blue screen, right? And because of the palette and like the fast moving things and the the changing light, it just looks so bad today. Yeah, with that thing running the rod puppet, it's technically it's filmed, it's photographed. You know, but they they did it on a blue screen and had to composite it, and it just doesn't. The, it's not there. Alien and Aliens from 1979 and 1986 look way better than this movie because of that. I completely agree. My it's earlier. a puppet. Earlier, and it, was, it looked like stop motion. It, it, like, it they looked, might as well have used go motion. So shitty. My favorite thing about Aliens 
and well, the Alien franchise, right? Is first of all Sigourney fucking Weaver. I think that Ripley's like one of the best characters ever created. But secondly, I think this is one of the best villains ever made, right? Oh yeah, and certainly I, designed. Yes, and it just looks neat, and that's what I want to see when I see a movie in the Alien franchise. Well, they rehired Giger to do this, and he designed it, and they threw most of his shit away again. You Jesus know? Christ! I mean, like, I just don't understand. Every time I saw the alien in this movie, it was for like a second, mm. and it just didn't look very good, and it looked different than I was expecting. But they didn't bother to explain why in the movie. Not really. Yeah, they they show, they don't really tell. Yeah, you know? I mean, and, and I'm okay with visual storytelling. In fact, that scene where it's sort of being burst from the ox, right, is really fucking neat, right? I mean, like when it pops out and it's already starting to like shed some skin and we immediately cut to like Ripley shaving her head. Right. I mean, like it's a really good sequence, but after that, every time I saw the alien, I was just really not impressed. No. And I, I think that's what this movie's missing too. I like, like I was telling you earlier in alien, we barely get to see the, the monster and that's what makes that movie successful. And yeah. in aliens, we see them in abundance. And in this one, it's just like, okay, you know? Yeah. Unfortunately. Speaking of things that don't quite fit, <laughs> let's talk about Elliot Goldenthal's score for this movie. I'm so glad that we're going to because I noticed the score and I, I like Elliot Goldenthal very much. And I, I, I like things that have some sort of like choral background to it. And there were some parts that I liked. Yeah, let's, re- let's refresh some of our listeners' drink here. Uh, Elliot Goldenthal famously did Interview with a Vampire. Yes. And a lot of cues are very similar here. Oh, they certainly are. He also did things like Frida, which are amazing. And, and uh, you know, a bunch of other scores that are uh, wonderful. You know, I will always absolutely love his score for Interview with a Vampire. He has a very rich tapestry of sound in his in his scores, but it's too theatrical for this. It's big, epic, gothic, but like it's just too muppety for this movie. Like you expect Lestat to just like walk out, you know, at any time. It sounds like a vampire score. It just does. Like and there's like a couple scenes, like the, when the sprinklers go off, it's like a. <laughs> and I was like, that was a choice, okay. But this might not be his fault. Like, there's there's monastic chanting. He didn't have a script either, you know. Mm-hmm. He didn't have much to work. He was working off dailies and like the the idea of a story from like four different writers. He was just writing music for a wooden world. There's monastic chanting all over the soundtrack in quiet moments, kind of reminiscent of Interview with the Vampire too, yes. but is strangely close to that monastic wooden planet setting. So I'm kind of wondering, like, even to this day. Elliot Goldenthal's quoted as saying that to this day, this is an unfinished movie from his perspective. I wonder how many people say that when they think about it, you know, who worked on this movie. I mean, I wonder how many people look back and they're like, can we just try again? You know? Oh, uh, <laughs> I like the score though. I, th- I thought it was good. It didn't fit. No, no it's good. It's good it's to good. listen to by itself too. Yeah. I would yeah. imagine. No, it's very, really, it's very good. That's something that the alien movies all have in common is really good music. Uh, certainly the first two with Jerry Goldsmith and James Horner's work, you know? So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just a huge, who's the, who did the music for the fourth one? Did we even know yet? Um, uh, the, that one and covenant and Prometheus. I'm not as familiar with their work. Yeah. Yeah, but it just all falls off a cliff after this too. So yeah. really, well, before maybe, this, I mean. really right before this movie as well. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I, I have a too low of a rating on this, you know, but it's like it's certainly a cliff from the five star ratings of the first two. Yeah, I mean, I, 
we'll get into that toward the end of the episode. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I was surprised at my rating. So, so talking about the, the film itself and like the, the assembly cut, right? The assembly cut is 37 minutes longer and includes alternate key plot points, right? Extended and previously deleted scenes. And um, they were able to do new digital effects and color matching. So the differences are, there's an alternate beginning showing the outside of the facility with the oxen kind of coming out to, to get the ship and everything that was not in the original the- theatrical cut. Which is the neat. Scene, I, yeah. I, I like this one. With all the flowing capes and all that, that was none of that was in the original. That fucking coat. I swear <laughs> to God, when Charles Dance showed up and his coat's like blowing in that like, you know, really stiff breeze. I was like, I have to have it. I have to have that coat. <laughs> But that's something you always want is the coats. Always. Yeah. And uh, the chest burst scene when the, the alien is born to terrorize them is from an ox in the assembly cut and versus a dog in the theatrical cut. I mean, I think that it's better to have a larger animal. So, I mean. And uh, there's I think there's more in this cut of the Charles Dance romance and some uh, some dialogue scenes that, you know, kind of show his background a little bit more, which I liked. I mean, I like to see Charles Dance. More, more. Charles Dance is more is, is a better film. Yes. I just I mean, I think that the romance sections of this are sort of like I don't forced. You know what I, I don't mean? know. They're for like I, I felt like they actually added some sort of arc almost almost on the verge of a character arc with Charles <laughs> Dance and Sigourney Weaver here. <laughs> I don't know. It just seemed like, you know, she's like they needed each other for to get off and to talk to each other because they were actually intelligent and not criminals, really. I mean, I get it. I, I could see why Charles Dance's character, um, I've even forgot his name, um, is like going Clemens. after Clemens, thank you, is going after, you know, uh, Ripley. But I don't see why Ripley's doing that. She went after him. Yeah, I know. And it doesn't make any sense to me. She's like, are you attracted to me? He's like, in what way? And she's like, in that way. I just, it doesn't make, it makes no sense to me. Well, she was about to bone Hicks, and then he got himself destroyed. Oh my god, that scene with his like jaw and everything everywhere. God. So, I mean, is is that her thing then? Is she just like... She wanted to get off. She's been in space a long time, man. Right? I mean, I get it. I Not guess. even a moment to herself. All these fucking aliens and shit. She has moments away from getting a Home Depot card herself. That's right. She mostly comes at night. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so there's also a subplot about Golik worshiping the dragon and then trapping the, the alien uh, and him releasing it again. That whole thing was not in theater. The theatrical cut, I believe. I kind of like that, though. I think it, it adds. It was a weird thing. I mean, it adds, like you said, almost a character arc. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. at least we have like some sort of fully fleshed character, like doing doing something from beginning to end. Yeah, and there's a lot of different moments here and there, but like it, the there's also a big ending difference with Ripley's chestburster versus the more Christ-like death in the assembly cut that where she it doesn't come out of her yet. Yeah, she kills herself before it's happening, which makes it a little bit more poignant, maybe. So I don't know. I'm on the fence with it, with them. I like the visuals of the of the chestburster scene. I think it gives us one last little, you know, chance at seeing this as a horror movie instead of like you know, a wet Grinch salad. But you know, I do like <laughs> the thematic quality of what he's trying to do with the assembly cut ending. Yeah, I, I I think that I mean like having her die in this Christ-like way is a really good for the character as a whole across several movies, right? But I kind of I mean I also like the more actiony kind of ending, and I I like the idea of Ripley experiencing the thing that she's most afraid of throughout these things. But I don't yeah. I don't know. I mean like I either way I'm I'm dissatisfied. <laughs> well, let's talk about 
why we're so dissatisfied by talking a little bit of the story. Yeah. Starting with, fuck the immediate deaths of Hicks and Newt from Aliens. Fuck that so hard. I hate it. I hate it so much. It's like James Cameron even came back and was like, we worked so hard to build this like family unit, basically. Like if he was going to come back and do it, James Cameron had already said he was going to do it surrounding like uh, Sigourney Weaver and Hicks and Newt. And then like them in this new environment against the company and everything else. And it was going to be like the next stage. But they immediately kill off those characters that we worked so hard to, to care about. And we did care about in, the, in that movie. And we didn't get to see them die really i mean the like, first five minutes of the movie the yeah, like first 30 seconds of the movie they're dead yeah like like snippets of their death right and i, I even wrote that in my notes when i was watching it was like no not newt i was just like no i mean like i at least if you're going to take the time to build a character from another movie like give them an appropriate send-off i don't mind if you kill them off later on there's that facet to it but there's also the facet of making it a part of ripley's journey i get zooming in on a character study if there's an arc yeah. Make it part of an arc. Make, make it have some sort of meaning, right? And so there's actually a, a cult following of this movie that that thinks that that's part of it, is that there is no meaning, you know? But we'll get into that a little bit later. But what a devastating nightmare for Ripley, right? And for the fans of the franchise, it isn't so much a slap in the face to fans, so much as getting like a gut punch. Without meaning, the film must have just one thing, depression, I mean, it's a very depressing movie, you know, and I, I, I can understand why they would go for like that sort of like emotional core to it. Right. I mean, if you're talking about prison, it's not supposed to be very happy. And- well, she had just gone through this whole thing to save Newt and to wake up after that moment of telling her she's going to dream and she's dead. That's so stupid. Like for a movie, we didn't have to have that. That didn't have to happen. No. Although I would rather her be dead before she wakes up. I don't want to see Ripley watch Newt die. God, I don't know. Such a fucking mess. Anyway, my next problem is that Charles Dance dies way too early and cheaply. And really quickly, you know, they're like, like having a conversation. He's like pulled up into the fucking ceiling. Well, they, yeah. And and they're trying to say like, no one's safe, you know, but who cares? It's an aliens movie. We already know that. We knew it from the first movie. I mean, like clearly (laughs) no one is safe when one of these fucking things are around. You don't have to show me again and again. I mean, I just, they killed off all the really like, important characters super early in this movie right except for aaron right they, and then uh, they remove the plot device of like ripley being in danger by having her impregnated and so yeah. there now there's a reason why that she's not going to die and it's like fuck you although i mean like the reason that the alien wouldn't kill her and uh that she's impregnated with the you know the embryo or whatever gave us like the best moment of this movie really and i i think by far the most famous part Oh, yeah. It's when, like, the, the xenomorph is, like, leaning into her. They're almost, like... It's kind of sniffing her. Yeah. Giving, like, fucking butterfly kisses and shit. <laughs> and then, yeah, the little mouth comes out. And she's like, eh, you know? And I'm just like, oh, I love that part of the movie so much. It it's has so been fucking ma- iconic. It, man, this it was a meme before memes existed. 30 years before memes existed. I mean, that's been in The Simpsons. It's been in fucking yes! everything. My favorite gif of all time <laughs> is the Simpsons version of this, where the alien comes out and kisses her on the cheek. And I swear to God, listeners when you look this up on Twitter, that gif will be there. I'm going to post it. <laughs> it's the most famous image from this film. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And it's, it, it's great. Yeah. Do you have any other points on the story? I mean, like 
we can move on to the themes if you want. I mean, like, yeah, no, I think that's it. I mean, like, I honestly like the story is so lacking and very just, linear and like no arcs and just yeah, like, yeah. I mean, like it's it's over two and a half hours. Watch while well, this happens to these people, and it doesn't have to be two and a half hours long. I'm like, I don't understand. Like we could have gotten rid of so many things, and I just, I, it just doesn't. The story doesn't work for me. Yeah, and I can already feel people like coming, like reaching back out and being like, "Well, like Lori fucking Strode didn't have an arc, you know? Like we actually overcame something, and so yes, Ripley overcomes something here, but nothing more than she's already done before. The the key thing is her sacrifice at the end. Yeah, and that'll come up in our themes. But like we've already kind of beat this dead horse into a chunky salsa with uh, no real character arcs. But I know, and I hate to shit on movies. So. I, yeah, and and I, honestly, I'm not giving this a horrible rating. But it didn't also didn't really deliver on genre expectations. Did this movie scare you? I mean, I know that you're going to ask that question. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on answering that. Question yeah, okay, now. like you know, but also like the gore and like there's other moments that could have happened, and like there's some. The some of the real promise of this franchise isn't really delivered, I don't think. No, and I, I don't remember Alien or Aliens being especially gory, right? There's lots of moments of violence, and the alien certainly kills a lot of people, and I don't it wasn't very gory. I think this movie tried harder at the gore and just wasn't very successful at it. You know what I mean? I yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It, it just, the only people it scared was like the makers of Prozac, you know. <laughs> When they I mean, saw how big their tax the tax payments were gonna have to be. I also didn't know what genre it was trying to be. You know, I mean, like, is it is it leaning more into sci-fi? Is it leaning more into horror? Is it leaning more into like some sort of prison drama? You yeah. know what I mean? Like there's there's way too many scenes in betwixt the action scenes <laughs> where it's just people talking, you know, and they're having long conversations about things and here's how it's gonna be, and this is like this is the planet we live on. Yeah, you know, and there's there's not enough of everything else. I have no idea what fucking genre this movie is. And they don't either because it's a great film that got lost, right? It's there's too many cooks. The script is the foundation for any film and and David Fincher didn't have that. He didn't yeah. have it. There's nothing else really we could say with all that history, given all the background, all the development hell this film has gone through. We have our explanation of yeah. why this film is the way it is. You know, and so it's fun to look at. It's fun to revisit every every few, you know so often and to see what it could have been and to think about it. It's a cautionary tale of filmmaking, <laughs> you know? The thing is, is that a lot of people don't watch movies the way that we do and go into and research, like, its production and whatnot. So some people are just watching Alien 3 and are watching a really bad movie and they don't know why. No. You know, or a movie that could have been so good because it's like all those wonderful ingredients. Yes. You know, although it's almost impossible to fuck this up. And somehow it was because, like I said, too many cooks. I do want to circle back to that kind of that cult following, especially after the assembly cut. Yeah. Where it's a little bit closer to Fincher's vision. And those people are arguing that this is like a, a really good example of depressive realism, you know, where it's actually like there is no meaning really yeah right and so there's almost like this like cynical quality to that like this is actually the story she's in and what is she doing with that you know and so i i get that um it doesn't really clinch that for me but i mean the film is depressed everyone who made it was depressed this is diegetic and non-diegetic depression the movie is a <laughs> charnel house and not in the good way <laughs> I mean, it's a super terrible nihilistic way of looking at this movie, but I mean, you're right. It doesn't seem like the right place for the franchise to go either. 
I feel yeah. very uplifted when I watch also, Aliens. Also, I feel a little bit too much like weird Dickensian proclivity when I say things like depressive realism. So I'm just going like, <laughs> to abandon that thing. It's not something that we say very often. I mean, but God. I grasped my decolletage when I saw the Dickensian proclivity of the depressed realism of this mise-en-scene. <laughs> Your depressive realism is so purient. <laughs> purient. God. Prurient, right? <laughs> I don't even know. Prurient. I never use that word in a sentence after I threatened to, so I have no idea. All right. So <laughs> I have a, I've got something that I can think would have fixed this. Okay, I would love to hear it. All right. Because so, it needs it. Yeah. We we have to get, I feel like the, the crux of this movie that would have made it all worth it is the the empty sacrifice at the end. I feel like, was she so backed into a corner that that was her only choice? And I feel like that's the case. She didn't have any other choice. And mayhaps if she hadn't tried to get the alien to kill her first, and then the preacher dude to try and kill her, then we would have been a little bit more on board and it would have been a little bit more poignant for the audience and for a final desperate heroic decision from Ripley to kill herself. But just cutting those brief scenes, maybe five minutes total, I feel like would have been more poignant and surprising for the audience. You are absolutely right. I think that like the worst part of her arc is that like she decides to sacrifice herself at the very end of the movie after trying to die so many times. Right. Yeah. Yeah, It's just ridiculous. And I mean, like no sacrifice, no really good, successful sacrifice. Right. Mm Self-sacrifice starts that way. People who want to self-sacrifice are always doing things for the good of the people around them, right? I'm not saying Ripley's not. She's leading these people throughout the movie and trying to kill the alien. She's, you know, incredulous. There's no, like, fucking weapons on the prison planet or whatever. But, I mean, like, she really does, like, want to die several times throughout this, just not for the same reasons that she dies at the end of the movie, right? Yeah. Another thing I think that would have gotten us there, because that's the end, and it would have made it more worth it and poignant, and it would have given meaning to the rest of the story, but something else that would have made the ride a little bit more enjoyable would have been to keep Charles Dance character alive. We have one too many characters in this movie, maybe even three too many characters, especially like the the talking white, blue-eyed guys with the British accents that I can't tell because they're all bald and healthy. <laughs> you know, maybe that's the point of that, too, is that they are meant to, to look alike, but... I would say keep Charles Dance alive, keep that relationship kind of on the on the slow boil, you know, and maybe give her some level of hope about maybe like a possible surgery to remove the queen embryo. Like if the company arrives and have technology, like he has the skills, maybe that's where he came from. He can do it. He can. He's honest. They have this honest, romantic kind of building relationship. And we keep him around. She's like, he's like an intellectual kind of buddy for her, for the movie. Like he, like he started, he doesn't get killed. And it's him instead of Aaron at the end that gets tragically killed by the company at the very end because they've made promises and they're not going to keep them. They kill him right in front of her. And then, and only then is the hope that she could maybe survive this gone. And then she makes that sacrifice. I mean, it would have been so much better. You're right. And I, I, I hate the end of this movie so much. When the company finally shows up and there's that like anti-bishop. I mean, get rid of the whole bishop thing, God. And then they have, I mean, like, however, the, the one Asian guy you were talking about earlier is like shows up with those like, like amazing glasses on and whatnot. I was just like, okay, I like it, you know, but I mean, but still it made no sense to me at all. And you're right. I mean, like you can't have a character like uh, Clemens in this movie and then have it 
killed off so easily. I mean, like it just it felt cheap. And like, that relationship was kind of a light in the dark. Yeah. And if they'd kept that all the way through, then it would have been made the ending even more poignant. I mean, I didn't really understand why they were doing it, but I liked that they had it, yeah. you know? And so, I mean, just, I was really just like reaching to find a character that I could like and hold on to, but no one seemed to last that long. And the characters that did, I just didn't give a shit about. So, yeah. I mean, like, well, Dylan was one. I feel yeah. like a couple of characters here could have been combined. Really? Oh yeah, for sure. Yes. You know? Story problems abound. (laughs) (laughs) So I have some fun facts for you. Oh my God. I'm sure these are going to be extremely fun. All right. So for my first one, uh, this started with like, of course, one of the many, many like committee meetings. Right. And so the huge meeting, like 60 people in one big room, all the suits, Sigourney Weaver's there. She actually was a producer on the film, you know? And so uh, at the end of this meeting, they're talking with David Fincher you know, Sigourney says, how do you picture Ripley in this film? And instead of giving some like answer about, you know, like the character arc or the themes or something, he said, oh, I don't know. Bald? <laughs> he literally said that to her? Yes. <laughs> in front of all the studio execs and everything. And they just like, the way he thinks is so different, you know? Wow. They expected some like heartfelt thing, you know, like about her character journey. And he's like, bald. I see a self-sacrifice. And, and she's like, like that's the guy. I want to be bald in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Choose him. <laughs> So uh, much more of the autopsy scene was filmed than ended up in the final film, even the the special edition. A rough cut of the scene originally contained so much gore on the character of Newt that even made the crew members who had worked on it sick to their stomach and left the theaters. Good Lord. I mean, like, I, uh, I mean, like, I'm okay with, with the gore and I'm okay with like some, some boundary pushing about doing that on a, on a child. You but know not if I mean? it has no meaning. But no, I mean, it, it needed to have some sort of payoff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like an alien pop out or something. Exactly. Hello, then, my honey. Hello, my darling. <laughs> <laughs> if you're all space ball style, then yes, it would have been perfect. Okay. So they tried a lot of things with the new alien, the quadrupedal, you know. I'm, I'm never going to say this word again after, after we record. Beetle. <laughs> um, a whippet. A whippet. A, a whippet dog <laughs> was used to play the young alien at first, which was ultimately too comical to use in the film. <laughs> I love whippets. They're so cute. <laughs> but that, that alien does look like a whippet. <laughs> Whenever it's running around quadrupedal style, I'm like, you're right. It's a whippet. Good Lord. God, we're getting so good about saying that word. Quadrupedal. 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 Prurian. <laughs> okay. At one point, David Fincher was denied permission by the film's producer to shoot a crucial scene in the prison understructure between Ripley and the alien, where she's going and saying, you've been a part of my life for so long, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And she hits that thing. Um, against orders, Fincher grabs Sigourney Weaver, a camera, and shot the scene anyway. And the scene appears in the final cut. And, I mean, like, uh, it's kind of eye-rolling. It is, because it's like, okay, from her perspective, it was like a few days on the ship, and then she sleeps for 50 years. Yeah. And then she's actually doing a job for like six months or a year or what, three months or a year or something like that in Aliens. And then she deals with it for like another week. Yeah. I mean, so it's she's basically been asleep for a long time. A week and a half of her life has been dealing with these aliens if you think about it. So, I mean, like actual time. <laughs> but I mean, like in the years that she's been asleep and when I get it. But I was just like, my God. Whenever she said that, I was just like, no, it hasn't been that long. <laughs> <laughs> Get a hold of yourself. <laughs> Sigourney fucking Weaver. You dizzy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So at least $7 million had been spent on sets that were never used thanks to the ever-changing scripts before filming had ever started. What a fucking waste of money. <laughs> 
Movies cost so much money to make. I cannot believe. Yeah. Actually, I can't believe. You know what? Fuck you, Fox. Yeah, they would shut things down and the people would continue to work and make sets so based on the storyboards they had and then everything would change. And I guess at this point, it's fuck you, Disney, but whatever. I mean, like, they didn't do it. Can you imagine being an art department and $7 million worth of your sets were never used? Jesus but hell, Christ. look at that movie. I mean, there's so much, like, to say that I I made this set or something or I had something to do with that. I mean, was, I mean the sets were amazing, but yeah. I, I would like to see what they spent that money on. Yeah, well, you know? here, <laughs> here you go. Because uh, they actually did some, they reshot that ending, right? Okay. Um, for like the sprinkler scene and then like uh, her clutching her decolletage uh-huh. as an alien burst from her uh, they reshot to add that really yeah because the original was her was it what we saw right. in the assembly cut was her falling Christ like into the molten lead or whatever the hell it is the furnace a backward swan yes and um, in Sigourney Weaver's contract she has said if she has to shave her head again they must pay her $40,000 right if she has to go back and do it so what they did was like instead of paying her that just to shave her head quickly, they paid nearly half that, sixteen thousand, to make a custom made bald cap with <laughs> tiny little hairs all through a custom hand punched hairs, hours and hours and hours to affix that to her head just in such a way that she could act with it and it wouldn't just like peel off. Oh my god. And he said to this day it's the hardest piece of makeup, special effects makeup he has ever done. Really? Is to cause her hair had grown up by about an inch. Right. Yeah. You know? And so they had to just like paste down her hair and put on the bald cap and it had to look exactly like it was before. And you can't tell. Yeah. I mean, I was, I'm just not thinking about it. I can't, I can't see the difference. Yeah. So at least they saved a little bit of money. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing that kind of screwed them, right. Was that Terminator two hadn't come out yet, but they had heard about him sacrificing himself in molten metal. Oh, I forgot. Came out like literally like six months later or something like that. So similar. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, we're covering that movie too, are we? Yeah. Next month. Next month. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> a much better film, I'll have to say. Thank thank you, Jesus. I'm so looking forward to Terminator 2 after watching Alien 3. <laughs> god. <laughs> but first we have to watch Alien Resurrection, Prometheus, and Covenant. No. <laughs> <laughs> Before we loop back around to James Cameron's double feature. That's right. I look forward to that. So the film's production process was so chaotic and its reception by fans and critics so unfavorable that it nearly ended David Fincher's career before it ever had a chance to gain momentum as a film director. But two things ended up saving Fincher from permanent movie jail. The first thing was Sigourney Weaver publicly and often angrily sided with Fincher against 20th Century Fox, telling journalists that the studio had made decisions that resulted in an impossible situation for the young director and that he would have made an excellent career if given further chances. Good. So she came to his aid. And the other thing was that producer Arnold Coppelson knew and didn't respect the management at Fox. And that was part of the process where he ultimately offered Venture a new project a few years later. And that project was titled Seven. Huge. Mm-hmm. Huge movie. And his massive success reignited Venture's career, making him one of the most respected directors of his time. And today. Yep. I mean, I... Like, I, I was watching this movie last night, and I was just like, how in the world did David Fincher recover from this fucking monstrosity? It's right? because that producer knew those people and said, no, this guy's got to get another chance. And it's because Sigourney Weaver, even though she was a producer on it and had some of the say in, in this, you know, as part of it, you know, she went to bat for him in a big, big way. And that's good, because he clearly... And it might have hurt her career to do so. Yeah. I mean, but... She's already Sigourney fucking Weaver, so it's not her that much, but I mean, yeah. 
So, lastly, David Fincher was asked by The Guardian why he disowned the film. He said, I had to work on it for two years, got fired off it three times, and I had to fight every single thing. No one hated it more than me. To this day, no one hates Alien 3 more than me. Good God. I don't think we've ever talked about a movie where a director like came out and said something like that about their own work. Yeah. It doesn't happen very often. And no part of the anything that I've read in the like the Wikipedia, the IMDb's, like none like uh or even the the making ofs because he wouldn't do it, but the studio never said. He says he was fired three times. How was, insane of a working condition could you be? I was just about to say, I can't imagine working in a, a fucking situation like that. Two years, fired three times, fighting every single thing, every single day. No. The fact that they came out and said this is the most like successful like entry into the franchise so far at that point is ridiculous to me, too. Oh, I remember seeing Alien 3 for the first time. I had been obs- I got to see Alien. I was obsessed with it. I got to see Aliens, and I was just like in love with it as a kid. And yeah. then Alien 3 came out finally on, on uh, home video. I saw it on Laserdisc. <laughs> <laughs> and it was advertised in some of like the, the pre-trailers or something. And it was like, and now on video, Alien 3, the best of the series. And I was like, no. Yeah. I mean, even as a kid, I was like, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I completely they agree were marketing with you. it, directly competing it against its predecessors, almost passive aggressively. And I mean, similar to you, like I, I watched this on home video. I didn't see it in the theater because I was, I mean, I was young. I think my parents went to see it. And I just didn't go with them. But I had I had already seen Alien and Aliens by the time this movie had come out. And I watched it on home video. And I was just not enthralled with it. And maybe because I was like 13 years old. You know, I think there are some like themes in this movie that are a little above my head at that particular age. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I was just not, it's not near as good, not near as exciting. And I mean, I, I can't say it was like super above me because around that same time I was watching movies like Howard's End and shit like that, you know? So I just, I just don't know. It's just not, it's not a really movie. And, and you know what? We're going to have to go and deal with the opposite problem with the next movie that just ties itself to a theme and an arc so hardcore that it's almost painful. I've almost forgotten everything about Resurrection. I've only seen it one time, but I remember liking it when I did watch it. So we're going to but before we get to resurrection we have got to ask some questions about alien 3 and we're gonna start with is alien 3 a horror movie yes yeah Yeah. i mean there's a quadrupedal alien running around (laughs) like a whippet (laughs) (laughs) whip it good okay (laughs) when an alien comes around you must whip it (laughs) um I don't know. I can't even talk. I, I can't. I can't with that question. Um, were you scared while watching Alien? No. Movie? No. Not even the fucking slightest. Thank you. Finally answering my question. Jesus Christ. I was I was I was not even on the edge of my seat. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I was just waiting for people to die because I wanted the movie to be over with. And I was every time I paused this movie to take a cigarette break or something, I was just like, oh my God, there's another hour. Oh my God, there's another 45 minutes. And I was just like, it will never end. And I just was not frightened. No. So nope. No. Out of five stars, Chris, what would you give Alien 3? I gave it a three. You know, it's it's so many ones. <laughs> but so many fives, like aesthetically and, and yeah. stuff. Like it's got so many great ingredients, like I said. So just like mishmash together to a three. And I think I'm being too kind there even. 
you know, really in the, in a real world, like I gave Alien 3 a two star, but watching the assembly cut is, you know, I get a glimpse of what they were really trying to do and I have to just settle on a low three, like just, you know, that's what I had to do. On Letterboxd, I checked the little thing that said I'd seen it before, you know what I mean? But I feel like I hadn't, you know what I mean? It's mm. been so long. And you've never seen the assembly cut. No, I've never seen the assembly cut, right. And so, like, I I couldn't remember the original cut. And so I'm, I'm really viewing this as sort of a first-time watch. And my gut instinct was to give it, like, two stars. And because I just did not enjoy myself. I didn't enjoy the movie. But then, like, looking at it, there's so many successful parts to it that didn't end up as a successful whole. And so I'm like three stars is a really good middle of the road kind of thing. And I, I I think that a lot of it is very good, but a lot of it is really fucking bad. And honestly, it's still a huge cliff from the first two, which we both gave, I believe five stars. And I think that's also it too, is that I, I have so many fond memories and I have a lot, even not memories. I enjoy watching alien and aliens today, you know? And so like, I, I, I didn't enjoy watching this and I can't foresee myself watching it anytime in the future. Mm. So yeah, three stars is probably the best that I could do for this. (laughs) But finally, and I'm going to say most importantly out of all these questions, who's the hottest guy in Alien 3? I have to say, uh, I remember you texting me <laughs> while during your watch, and I, I'm, I'm hoping this is the answer for you, but... Uh, you're right. When you texted me that, hey, Charles Dance is kind of foxy in this movie. I have to agree. He's so young here. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like, I whenever he showed up in that blowing coat, and I was just like, I was like, oh, look at you, Charles Dance. I was just like, come on. He's so good looking in this movie. And I, was, I wasn't expecting that. I didn't remember that. But he, he's very good looking. I mean, in a movie that has like a mostly male, well, almost an entirely male cast. You know, originally it was supposed to be um, Gary Oldman. Supposed to be Gary Oldman, uh, but they couldn't get him. And then it was between Charles Dance and Richard E. Grant. Oh. Also from Bram Stoker Dracula fame. I think they made the right choice. Yeah, me too. I he's I, I think he's one of the best parts of this movie. I think especially that, sitting next to Charles S. Dutton and some of those other people that were so eloquent. Yes. like you've got a warden who's speaking almost Shakespearean yes. like stuff. You've got Charles S. Dutton who's just doing these amazing monologues that are so empowering and so such resonant voices. And then Charles, you know, Richard E. Grant is great. You know, is just an amazing actor, but he doesn't have the presence uh, or resonance compared to the other as part of this ensemble that that would make Charles dance the right fit. And that's the thing is that Charles dance in this movie is so much quieter than the other people. You know what I mean? Like, I just I like his character so much, maybe for those reasons. Yeah. And I, he just has this like like smoldering eye looks whenever he does things. So, yeah, totally the hottest guy <laughs> in this movie is Charles dance. And I never yeah. In, in my entire life thought I would ever answer a question like that. <laughs> so. the, a lot of these guys are actually cute, right? If they oh, yeah. had, you know, like, it's not that they're bald, it's just that they're all dirty and they've got, like, the, the makeup and the bad teeth in and, and stuff like that, you know, like, um, there's some of these actors, like the guy that went on to do Doctor Who, he played, like, the, the guy that was worshipping the dragon. Yeah. He has actually an attractive guy, you know, and he should have been the answer here, but they made them purposefully ugly. Yeah, you know, but Charles Dance, uh, you know, the character as well as you know how he is in the film. Is yeah, just, for he's got to be the. 
I like that. I like. This. I think it's the only answer for that. For it's this Bishop's decapitated head <laughs> and his milky eye. eye. <laughs> the wrong kind of bulge I wanted, but is the hottest guy in this film. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> well. I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Alien 3, finally. (laughs) But we want to know what you think about this movie. We know it's kind of polarizing. Some people love it. Some people hate it. You can tell us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com. Or you can call us at 972-666-7733. Come closer to us, you bitch. (laughs) (laughs) If you can't get enough of the Film Flamers, head over to patreon.com slash the Film Flamers and find all of our bonus content, including this month's bonus episode where we're wrapping up the Alien franchise with Prometheus and Covenant. And of course, that means next week we're dropping Alien Resurrection. That's right. So, hopefully, fingers crossed... We're going to get a better movie than this one. We'll see. I don't know. I haven't seen it in so long. I've, I've almost given up hope now. So. <laughs> All right. Well, Chris, I think it's time for us to go off and, and resurrect ourselves from this self-sacrifice we just did by covering Alien 3. <laughs> that is a floss after eating all this wet Grinch salad. <laughs> Let's go have some... Sweet dreams, quadrupedal. <laughs> Quip it. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking dog. <laughs>
Hitler's Serve the death that I'm forced to witness Put the lead, it can't be slow Get the piece of water, make it explode Use the sprinklers Short plan won't die on our knees, we'll take a stand.